At the end of July 1895, the church bells rang out in Coot Hill, County Cavan. Years later, locals claimed the bells were rung to mark the birth of a new saint in the parish. His name was John Charles McQuaid, and he was to become the future Archbishop of Dublin. But the bells were in fact told for another baby. He was the new baby born into the big house. He was Eric Dorman Smith, and although he was born into the privileged class, he spent his life fighting authority and ultimately turned his back on it. The young Eric would go on to lead a life full of contradictions. He was a British general and a passionate Irish nationalist, an acclaimed military thinker who was sacked by Winston Churchill. A close friend of novelist Ernest Hemingway and a figure studied by the president of the GAA. Eric Dorman Smith had a number of different names throughout his life, but for locals in Coot Hill, he had only one name, the Brigadier. One day we were down there and he came along and we didn't see him. Hugh O'Brien, local historian in Coot Hill. What are you doing down here? Huh? And he swung a black tarn stick and my friend with the long legs could jump it. I had to vault over it just like that. And my friend would shout back at me, run for the church, Huey. So that was my introduction to the Brigadier. Hugh remembers that years after the Brigadier's war was over, he still looked like a soldier. The khaki shorts and the knee-length socks. And that was appropriate because he was still fighting for his good name. I still feel angry about it. It's not just the way he was treated then, but there's just the sheer number of lies that were told about it. That's the Brigadier's son. He says the lies told about his father came from the top of the British establishment in World War II. Churchill and Montgomery. And what's my interest? Well, my grandfather knew the Brigadier and contributed to a book about the man. I came across the book recently and was transfixed by the story. It tells of an Irishman whose career began in the British Army in World War I. He rose to become a general fighting Rommel in North Africa, and then, bitter at his treatment by the British, he ended his career by coming home and advising the IRA during the 1950s border campaign. It's a great story, but is it true? The truth is never a good story. It's always a good lie makes a good story. We're in County Cavan, close to the border with Northern Ireland, on a hill between two lakes, enveloped within acres of forest. I began by visiting the house he was born into and ended his days in, Bellamont. This was always known to the locals as the castle. This is Noel Carney, a local tasked with restoring the property. When it was built in 1725, what did the peasants and the local people think in the surrounding countryside when they looked across from their little hovels, which would have been mud wall and thatch roofs, and they saw this incredible palace? This ancestral home was where the seeds for Eric's mercurial personality were sown. It has a, an almost TARDIS effect to it. It's, uh, it feels much bigger on the inside than it looks on the outside. Yes, very deceiving the outside. Yeah. And possibly this sort of idea of cubism, you know, uh, the width and the height and whatever gives you the effect of a little box. But once you come inside, there's huge grandeur and great rooms. 
even just a staircase, is highly decorated. Eric was born in 1895. His family, the Dorman Smiths, were descended from a County Down clan by the name of O'Gowan. My name is Christopher Dorman O'Gowan. I'm the son of Major General Eric Dorman O'Gowan, formerly Dorman Smith, MC. The family fortune was made by Eric's grandfather on the dockside in Liverpool. He began, the story goes, by picking up bits of coal which had fallen along the quayside in Liverpool, putting it into a bag and selling it. So he had 100% profit from that. That profit he put into coal mines. Eventually, Eric's grandfather made enough money to buy a big house in Cavan, Bellamont. It is said Bellamont was supposed to have been gambled away at gambling tables. That's the story. Whether it's true or not, I don't know, but it makes a nice story. So although Eric's family lived in a manor house, they weren't strictly gentry. And they weren't properly establishment either. Eric's mother was Protestant, but his father was Catholic. Eric's two brothers were raised Church of Ireland, but Eric was baptised Catholic. Not only that, Eric had a nanny who was a nationalist. She would take him to watch Unionist parades in Coote Hill in the early 1900s. These are not your people, she would whisper to him, and he would listen. Eric read books on glorious chivalry and played games of glorious defeat. In this piece, read by actor Bosco Hogan, he wrote comically about his serious approach to play. I practised dying, taking up the latest corpse pose on the nursery floor. Our nurse shook me into life and made me go walking. At the age of five, one has never left to die in peace. But the idyllic isolation of Bellamont and Cavan was not to last. Childhood may be said to have ended when I went to prep school first. At the age of nine, Eric's parents sent him to boarding school in England. England marked a change in many ways. Anglicisation set in and slowly asserted itself. Eric attended a number of schools before entering Sandhurst at the British Army's Military Academy at 17 years old in 1913. This is where I connect to Eric's story. My grandfather was an instructor at Sandhurst and taught Eric. He was an instructor before the First World War. I didn't get to talk to him about Eric before my grandfather died, but he did contribute to a biography of Eric. Your grandfather liked him enormously. This is Lavinia Greeson, the author of that biography. And they were obviously on the same lines. My grandfather may have liked Eric, but not everyone did. Lavinia says that Eric was difficult. If he liked you, he was one of the most charming men you could ever meet. He was fascinating to talk to. He was a good listener. Somebody described it as his mind came right across the room and met yours. He had a good sense of humour, but wit, not a funny story sense of humour. And he was absolutely great, and you became an enthusiast for him. If he didn't like you, it was fairly apparent. It would come across that he rather despised you. And that puts anyone's hackles up. Part of that personality was a hatred of prejudice. Anti-Semitism was rife at Sandhurst. But by now, Eric was over six foot tall and unafraid to speak out. He was furious when he heard that a mob planned to torture a Jewish cadet by giving him an ink bath. 
which meant stripping him naked, chasing him around the grounds in the dark. And this was a boy who had thought that he was accepted and suddenly found that because of his Jewish, he wasn't. Eric and a fellow cadet stood outside the victim's room, guarding the door with hockey sticks. This is how Eric described the incident in a letter. The ringleaders were upset at our lack of solidarity, but the passage was narrow, and it was obvious that if they tried to take him out of the room, someone would get hurt. We harangued the mob, telling them what we thought of them. He hated bullying in any way, shape or form. He wouldn't tolerate it. Christopher Dorman O'Gowan, Eric's son. He would put himself on the line, so to speak, to stop it, and he did then, and, and that's absolutely in character. Once you do that, you leave what people perceive to be the majority. He took pleasure in being different. He said, if everybody walks in one way, I instinctively walk in the other. He took pride in being not one of the herd. That made him always slightly on the edge of any grouping in the army. 1914, World War I broke out. Eric, barely 19 years old, was sent to France to fight the Germans. Irish affairs were never far behind. On one occasion, an Irish private approached Eric and... ..asked when this particular show was over whether he could keep his rifle. And my father inquired as to why he wanted that, and he said, well, because we have things to do in Ireland. And my father said, well, let's, let's get this show over first before we turn our mind to anything else. <laughs> World War I, General Gowan, 217, take three. The Germans then tried to take the obstacle down. This is Eric speaking to the BBC in 1964. The next thing I saw directly in front of me was a German soldier sitting astride, a low three-foot wall, it must have been, at the bottom of the gardens, of the houses whose gardens faced down to the canal, directly across from the north side of the canal, about 200 yards away, rather less. He sat there looking, and quite motionless, I think he was resting almost on the garden wall. He'd probably had a lot of marching. I said to the uh, fusilier next to me, Private so-and-so, whose name I forget, I'm afraid, shoot that man. And then the voices from either side of me said, oh no, the officer must have first shot. And somebody said, take my rifle, sir, it's a good one. So I realized that, I, uh, that, that uh, it was up to me. And uh, so I shot him. He fell down on our side of the wall and lay quite still below the wall. Almost at once, another German got up onto the wall, sat on the wall, looking down at my victim. So uh, the voices said, go on, sir, have another shot. And I fired again and shot him. A third man did the same thing, and I shot him. Uh, after that, I handed back the rifle, saying, really, it's somebody else's turn with this war now, you see. Eric was frequently wounded in action. He won a military cross, one of the highest accolades in the British Army. Meanwhile, his friends were killed, one by one. When one close friend was lost in action, Eric fell apart. He was really affected by that, and he actually went home on his next leave and went missing, and nobody knew where he was. And his father eventually found him in one of the family properties, alone in the dark, waiting. So he had a nervous breakdown, effectively, do you think? 
It could be termed a nervous breakdown, but I don't think it was. I think it was grief, we might say now. I saw how pitilessly horses were destroyed in modern barrages. I saw how senseless it was to use men against metal in frontal attacks. If there was such a thing as military science, the war had shown little evidence of it. He was a sensitive, intelligent man with an imagination. Other people went through similar horrors who perhaps didn't have the same imagination. They weren't as affected, but he was affected by them. And by this determination, it must not happen again. When I read his biography, I was fascinated to see that Eric's sensitivity, which had made him so angry about the way World War I was conducted, also meant he was open to meeting new kinds of people beyond the military world. One such meeting took place in northern Italy at the end of the war. Her father was in the Anglo-American club in Milan, the day of the Italian armistice. And when the news came in on the newspaper, her father saw this and turned to the other chap who was in the room and said, so we're going to live. And they got talking, and that young man was Ernest Hemingway. The pair spent almost every day together in Milan. Of course, this was some years before Hemingway became a world-famous writer. They drank, they talked. That's Geoffrey Mayers, Hemingway's biographer. Hemingway questioned Chink. Chink. Hemingway knew Eric by his nickname, Chink, which he got from his regiment's mascot, the Chinkara Antelope. He had a tremendous curiosity about his military experience. You have to remember that Hemingway was a civilian. He was handing out candy and chocolate to soldiers on the Italian front. This was not heroic. Do you think they were well-matched intellectually? No, I think Chink really had it over Hemingway then. Uh, Hemingway, of course, never went to university. And Hemingway, I think, idealized Chink. Maybe he thought Chink was greater than he really was. They each had to take each other's word for what they had done. And Hemingway, when he got drunk, which was every day, tended to exaggerate his military exploits, giving himself a couple of medals that he never earned and bragging about sexual conquests in Sicily that never took place. And of course, Chink saw right through it and probably had an amused smile and thought, this is a young kid and, you know, that's okay, I don't mind, I I like him. The thing is, they were both likely lads. They were both destined to really make their mark in the world. And I think they recognized that in each other. In 1921, Hemingway moved to Paris with his wife. Eric, now based back in England with the army, reunited with him to climb mountains in Europe. In this letter, read by actor Roger Gregg, Hemingway wrote to his father from Switzerland. Dear Dad, it's great down here. My old pal, Major Dorman Smith, has been spending his leave with us, and we've been out trout fishing and mountain climbing, and next week we're going to walk over the St. Bernard Pass. Eric visited the couple in Paris and mingled with an artistic community that included the writers James Joyce, Ezra Pound and Gertrude Stein. Your father was the godfather of Hemingway's first child, Bombay. Bombay. Yes, he was. Hemingway, I think, suggested that he might get his son baptised. They settled on the American church. Father was dispatched because he was a bit tidy addressed to chat up the padre there with regard to arranging this great event. And all that time, the vicar thought that father was the father of the child to be baptised, and father made it absolutely clear that he wasn't. 
but that the father was outside. So looking out of the window, the padre saw this scruffy man leaning against a lamppost reading a tatty piece of newspaper. <laughs> so um, with great reluctance, Bumby was eventually baptised. Son of Ernest Hemingway, writer. Godfather was Eric Dorman Smith, professional soldier. And the godmother was Gertrude Stein. And the godmother was Gertrude Stein. So there's a hell of a trio, really. <laughs> all, all ended up in church on the same day. To top it off, James Joyce's son, Giorgio, played the church organ. Eric travelled with Hemingway to the Furman Bull Running Festival in Pamplona. To be less conspicuously foreign, we all wore the local Basque beret. Hemingway wrote in a 1924 poem about Eric. Drunk in Pamplona, on absinthe, in the white wicker chairs outside the Suizo, always talking. When drunk I boasted, and you never minded. Ireland, you predicted the death of Mick Collins, Griffith, Russia, and the funny stories of Chicharin. Eric was starting to inform Hemingway's writing. Wilson Harris, a character in The Sun Also Rises, is modelled on him. As their careers flourished during the 1920s, they went their separate ways. For Eric, though, the friendship was life-changing. He returned to traditional military circles more determined than ever to shake things up. He became more acerbic, more judgmental about what he was prepared to put up with. Lavinia Greeson, Eric's biographer. He wouldn't have shown his disdain for military tactics to someone in the mess, but it did make him, from a private point of view, more judgmental about what he expected people to be able to do and how he expected them to be able to change their mind. And he found that most of his contemporaries were very set in their ways. Meanwhile, there was business to attend to back home. In June 1921, Eric was sent with his regiment to Ireland during the War of Independence. An official move was made to prevent me going with the battalion since I was an Irishman. This I resisted, holding that a professional soldier was insulated from political events, even in his own country. I don't think it was a problem, really. He, was, he certainly was very interested in reading the papers thoroughly and following Michael Collins and the rise of other people while he was there. But he was only in Carlo barracks. He didn't go out and about. But when tipped off about a black and tans raid in Coot Hill, Eric helped his former nurse in Bellamont, now married to a local IRA commander, hide a cache of hand grenades. Eric's sympathies were in contrast to the behaviour of one British officer, Bernard Montgomery, who was commanding a division in Cork at the time. Montgomery had never hidden his dislike of Irish nationalists. When I read about Eric at this time, it seemed as though he could have easily found a new direction in life away from the army. He was interested in the arts, he was a good writer, and yet, despite the fact that he disliked so many people in the military, he was intrigued by the science of war. So he stayed. By the right! By the right! In 1927, Eric applied for Staff College, where soldiers are trained for the upper echelons of the army. Two opinions about military strategy emerged from the First World War. The majority view was the orthodox one, that you never committed enough men unless you were sure of beating the enemy. You outnumbered him. You had him in a position where you would attack him and steamroller him almost into submission. Chink's view was that you treated it as a chess game, intelligently. You committed as few people as possible. 
because they were safe, they were not committed. And you went in, it was known as the indirect approach. You would go in through the back and take the enemy by surprise. Montgomery, by now a senior lecturer at Staff College, did not like this approach. Father was overheard complaining about Montgomery's solution as being taking a sledgehammer to crack a nut. He strode up in his little man walk. What's this I hear, Dorman Smith? You think my idea of tactics is to take a sledgehammer to crack a nut? Perfectly true, Colonel, I replied. Preposterous, he said. I don't think Father thought very much of Montgomery's instruction or his personality, you know, the, the hat with all the badges on it and all of that. By now, Eric was asking friends to call him O'Gowan, his family name, before it was anglicised to Smith. He felt always naturally very Irish, you know. Many people had grown up in Ireland, but once the changeover had happened, they tended to side with England, whereas he never did. There was one occasion when members of the newly organised Irish army came to visit. And Montgomery was organising a boycott of these men who presumably had fought in the War of Independence, and the father was the only one who volunteered to go down and talk to them and see to them. And made them welcome. When it came to his love life, Eric's loyalties were more muddled. After a string of affairs with married women, he met Estelle in the late 1920s. She was married with a child. Once her divorce was settled, they married in 1927. Over the next 10 years, Eric rose through the ranks of the British Army. He was developing a unique military mind, but he was also making enemies amongst his fellow officers. They thought he was too intelligent, too cerebral, hadn't thought it all through, too independent, abrasive. And if he despised them, and he despised quite easily, he would correct them in public or in front of the men they're commanding. You should never do that. He would do that. He was driven by this race against time to get as many people thinking intelligently about war as he could. 1938, Eric and Estelle moved to India, where he became director of military training. In India, Eric was no more popular with his army colleagues than he had been in Britain. Partly, his son Christopher says, because having seen the vulnerability of horses in the First World War, Eric was obsessed with mechanising the army. It was quite difficult for the mentality of many cavalry officers whose lives had circulated around their horses. Hunting, polo, all that went with that way of life, which has now gone. They should dehorse and start thinking about mobility and everything else. Great resistance in the 30s. Despite his growing posse of enemies, Eric did form close bonds with some senior officers, like Richard O'Connor and Claude Auchinleck. And in his personal life, he had a friend and admirer in Ernest Hemingway. I hung my booted legs over the side to let my feet cool and drank the beer and wished old Chink along. Hemingway wrote about Eric, a.k.a. Chink, in his 1930s novel The Green Hills of Africa. Chink and I had discovered a big part of the world together. And then our ways had gone a long way apart. After a year or so in India, Eric volunteered for a training post in Egypt. He left his wife behind in India. He was lodged in a hotel in Haifa, 
In the same hotel were the wives and children of other officers, including a woman named Eve. Eve was there with her young daughter while her husband was away serving in East Africa. I never inquired too closely as to who did what to whom, but I do remember my mother telling me she saw this elegant and good-looking gentleman with red tabs on his collar and was determined to do something about it. <laughs> Eric wrote in a letter. The moment you came across the room and into my arms really clinched matters, for we were not then lovers. We had never kissed, even. We've thoroughly awakened each other in a way I never expected to happen to me. And that sort of awakenedness doesn't go to sleep again. With his wife in India and Eve's husband in East Africa, Eric and Eve began an affair. His affair with Eve was well known. I mean, it wasn't concealed in any way. So that got round the army pretty fast. Was it frowned upon at the time? Oh, God, yes. Oh, absolutely, yes. It was, it was a big boo-boo. Eric and Estelle eventually divorced, which further damaged his reputation. You know, I think father lost a lot of friends through divorcing Estelle. September 1939, World War II broke out. General Richard O'Connor, Eric's friend, asked for his help in stopping the Italians from invading Egypt, which was occupied by the Commonwealth forces, using Eric's indirect strategies, they defeated the Italians. One cannot help feeling the excitement as news comes in of more and more prisoners. Over 38,000 Italian prisoners were taken and enormous captures of weapons and gear. It is so wildly beyond our hopes. That was a brilliant campaign against the Italians. This is Corelli Barnett, a military historian who was a friend of Eric's. Nobody knew how good or not so good the Italians would be. And so to take on this very large desert army under Graziani with a very small Western desert force was a very bold thing to do. And the actual uh, strategy of hooking behind the Italian camps was pretty brilliant stuff. By thousands, the prisoners are being shipped to prison camps outside Egypt. An advance of over 400 miles has been made. The whole Italian army in the east of Libya has been captured or destroyed. Events in Libya are now likely to proceed like a ladder in a stocking. What next? Soldatengräber in Africa. February 1941. General Rommel. Adolf Hitler sent Field Marshal Erwin Rommel, a.k.a. the Desert Fox, to Libya to finish what the Italians had started. Soldaten des Deutschen Afrika Korps besuchen ein Beduinenlager in der Nähe von Tobruk. April 1941. Rommel captured Richard O'Connor, the British general and Eric's friend. The speed and the daring of Rommel's manoeuvres you know, simply took the dear old stodgy Brits totally by surprise and they didn't know how to handle it. Rommel advanced, defeating the British at every battle, winning back the key port town of Tripoli and getting closer to his goal, control of the Middle East. Eric was forced to watch proceedings from Staff College in Haifa. And here is the man upon whom all eyes are turned at this critical period in the Middle East. 25th of June, 1942. Claude Auchinleck, Eric's friend, 
sacked the inept commander of the British 8th Army and stepped into his place. General Auchinleck assumed command of the 8th Army, taking up his quarters in a mobile office personally to direct operations. He appointed Eric his chief of staff. His men set to work with stout hearts to prepare for the approaching clash of arms. I talked to Auchinleck about this, and he was looking for a fresh approach, a fresh mind. Corelli Barnett, military historian who was a friend of Eric's. What he needed was intellectual stimulation. He wanted a man with ideas close to him. Rommel's victorious forces had overwhelmed the 8th Army. The battle lines were drawn at Alamein, an Egyptian railway station. Only the hastily manned defences at Alamein stood between the enemy and the Suez Canal. Eric was extraordinarily influential because one of the things he did was to shore up Auchinleck's own morale. I mean, you know, all around there was glumness and despair. And I seem to remember Auchinleck telling me that at one point he said something like this to Eric. Do you think we can actually pull this off? And Eric was absolutely clear that they could and they would see Rommel off. The two of them, I think, slept on the battlefield, didn't well, they? Well, absolutely right. They were in their sleeping bags on the desert and a real closeness. Lavinia Greeson, in her book, writes about a moment between Auchinleck and Eric one night on the battlefield. Auchinleck reached for Eric's hand and held it, and it was just a human warmth. I think he felt tremendously vulnerable at that point. By July 17, 1942, Auchinleck and Eric had stopped the Germans and seized the initiative. Eric wrote, If everyone does his duty during the next 48 hours, we'll lick the blighters properly. We seem to be holding them well, and if they're licked here, they are lost. I've got it. I've got it there, if I can... The Rommel papers. Christopher Dorman O'Gowan, Eric's son. On the 17th of July, Rommel wrote to his wife saying, Dearest Lou, things are going downright badly for me at the moment, at any rate in the military sense. The enemy is using his superiority, especially in infantry, to destroy the Italian formations one by one, and the German formations are much too weak to stand alone. It's enough to make one weep. Eric must have been in his element. He was having a direct impact on the war. They had stopped Rommel in July 1942. His form of warfare was winning out. His truculence didn't matter. Well, it didn't matter on the battlefield, but of course, wars aren't in the hands of soldiers. They're managed by politicians too. And politicians require very different skills. Skills which Eric didn't have. Travelling up to El Alamein, the Prime Minister made a point of chatting with the gun crew. This became obvious when, in 1942, Churchill came to visit North Africa. General Auchinleck meets the Prime Minister. Eric and Auchinleck believe the military route to success involved holding off on a final push against Rommel until they had their supply lines and resources in place. But Churchill was in a hurry. And Churchill had support. In the wings was Eric's nemesis from military college. Bernard Montgomery. I don't think Eric and Auchinleck played this well. What uh, Churchill fed on was flattery and, you know, being lushed up. The Prime Minister, as guest of honour, is invited to lunch in the officers' mess. What Monty did was to make sure he was really comfortable and sort of lay on lunches and this sort of thing, whereas Eric and Auchinleck thought that they must play this absolutely straight and this is the way the war is, this is the way we and the soldiers live. So, in fact, there was a flybone picnic of rather miserable rations and Churchill was not impressed. <laughs> 
11th Cairo. Christopher Dorman O'Gowan, um, reading from his father's diaries from August 1942. A Monty arrives. Good Lord, he's written that in. I hadn't seen that before or understood. 3.30pm, Commander-in-Chief. He learns he's fired. Churchill fired Eric and Orkinlech because they wanted to delay the next round of battle. Churchill visited the 8th Army, accompanied by the new commanders he had appointed. General Alexander, Commander-in-Chief, and General Montgomery, commander of the 8th Army. But when Montgomery got the job, he did exactly the same thing. He too played the waiting game. The Battle of Alamein, the big one, actually was a month later than the offensive as planned by Orkinlech and Eric. In November 1942, Montgomery defeated Rommel at the Second Battle of Alamein. In the Western Desert, Montgomery was building up the 8th Army to strike a blow which this time would be decisive. Monty was hailed as the victor hero who corrected the failures of his predecessors, Claude Auchinleck and Eric Dorman-Smith. 19th packing, fly home. Not a happy man. Not a happy man, no. By now, Eric's poisonous reputation was well known. In 1944, he was appointed commander of a brigade in Italy, but his past followed him there. A fellow officer lodged a complaint over his appointment. Eric Dorman-Smith was finished. He was removed from command and flown back to England, where he lingered, and it seemed to be to be unemployed and unemployable. Nobody wanted him. And so I think in a fit of pique, he wrote a resignation letter, which was readily accepted. He was retired with the honorary rank of brigadier, and the pension of a full colonel. That was all the thanks that he got for that. What would that, what would that have done to him? Oh, broken him, really, I think. Lavinia Greeson, Eric's biographer. Made him incredibly angry. And to see all the, as he would have thought of them, men who had thrown other men's lives away by thick decisions, seeing them go on and get acclaim and higher ranks, and he was incredibly bitter and very sad. It was very sad. Having resigned from the army, Eric moved back to England, where he developed an interest in politics. In 1945, he stood as a Liberal candidate in the English general election. Defeated, he moved back to Ireland with Eve, where his children, Christopher and Rihanna, were born. In 1948, Eric's father died, and he inherited Bellamont. By now, Eric was exploring Irish nationalism in earnest. He changed his name from Dorman Smith to Dorman O'Gowan and spoke at United Ireland rallies. He also toured America, calling for an end to Irish partition with support from the Irish government. And then, in the early 1950s, he stood for election in Cavan on a United Ireland ticket. But, I mean, that was a dream, sure. Fianna Fáil was shouting it. All the politicians down the year were shouting it. Hugh O'Brien, historian. He was up on the platform talking about, got this rose from a lady in Paris. The next thing, a fellow like the deaf McGee be shouting up, where the fuck were you in 1916? They considered him eccentric. Aegon O'Farrell, local historian, says Eric's demeanour worked against him with Cavan voters. 
He dressed differently. He, he wore tweeds and dicky bows. He, he spoke differently. He obviously had an English accent. He was very much known to have been a man who had a stellar career in the British Army but was now speaking publicly on the reunification of Ireland. So he confused people. Eric's foray into Irish politics was a failure. He didn't even get his deposit. You know, I mean, no, no one was going to vote for him. And my father would have met Eric Dormanogawit when he would be home. As well as being an historian, Aegon O'Farrell is also president of the GAA. He's from near Coote Hill in Cavan. We had a country shop and a post office. A lot of people would gather in, a tradition that's now gone, but it was a Cayley house, that it was called. And as I was a young man growing up in the 1960s, uh, the neighbours would pack into our little kitchen at night. They would talk about local and world events. And they would play cards. And certainly I would have heard a discussion and commentary on the brig. The thing I remember most about him... Most of the men that I'm referring to, they were all probably former veterans of the War of Independence. They would have fought with the local IRA. Certainly in the 60s, they would have spoken about his uh, dalliance with republicanism. This dalliance, as Aegon calls it, began with Eric approaching local republicans. He made contract through the local IRA unit in Coot Hill, offering help. This is Charlie Murphy, who was the adjutant general of the IRA at the time of the border campaign. He seemed very genuine about the Irish cause. Shortly after that, he began suggesting possible targets, which I wouldn't want to be going into now, 60 years after the event. Was part of you cautious in thinking, well, this man was a British uh, general in the British Army. This could potentially be a setup, or, you know, this could be dangerous for us. Well, why did you decide to, to meet him? Well, we took him on face value, and anything we knew about him in the very recent past at the time was to his credit. You know, I mean, Sean McBride had a high opinion of him. Was Dorman O'Gowan enthusiastic? Unbelievably so. I mean, I won't say he was like a teenager, but it just oozed out from this empathy, call it what you will, for the Irish cause. And I did say to him, look, you should be a bit careful because uh, you could jeopardise your pension. I, I don't know if that even crossed his mind. Eric made his house and grounds available to the IRA for training and mobilisation. Eric's son Christopher was a small child at the time and had no clue about what was going on. I do remember a van rolling up at the back of Bellament, the back of the house, where there are steps going down to the, what used to be the old kitchen. And I do remember men coming out of it carrying rifles. And, of course, I was quite excited about this and curious and asked what they were, and I was told that they were foresters. <laughs> so that's, that was the limit of that. I was then packed off to go back up, upstairs. It seems that Eric relished being back in the war game. He admired a previous attack on a military barracks in Armagh, and he was looking forward to the IRA's next skirmish, a raid on a barracks in Oma. This involved stealing two British Army lorries and transporting ammunition across the border. According to Charlie Murphy, though, there was a problem with the plan. Once they got the lorries into the Republic... What to do about the trucks? And he immediately said, that won't be a problem. We'll drive them into the lake and they'll sink to the bottom and they'll never be found. As is well known, the Oma raids failed. So that was the end of that. 
I've, I've been to Ballamont and I went down into the basement. Yeah. I believe he had an operations room. Yeah, he set up an operations room there, which we never used, by the way, with maps and everything. I think he was a bit disappointed, but, I mean, we didn't use it because if he became the object of police surveillance, it would negate the whole thing, you know? He knew that the RUC would have liked to have had a crack at him. And in those years, he would never go into the North. So he was always prepared for some sort of nastiness taking place. Eric's career as a Republican military advisor was over. He wasn't included in decision-making. He wouldn't be telling anyone what was planned, so, I mean, he was no different in that regard, you know. He excelled at war, but now in his 50s, nobody wanted those particular skills. But throughout this period of his life, one old friend never lost faith in Eric. On a visit to New York, he renewed his friendship with Ernest Hemingway. They didn't drink beer anymore, now they drank champagne. Jeffrey Mayers, Hemingway's biographer. He said he, it was hard to see the little boy in Hemingway. He'd really, well, of course, he had changed a lot. Put on a lot of weight and became grizzled and maybe had his white beard on. And they must have had a tremendous amount of talk about Chink's experience in the war. He was the model for Cantwell and Across the River of the Trees. That's Hemingway's novel about a disgruntled war officer. You and I have this in common. We belong to a defrauded generation. We have had the sticky end of two world wars, and we have seen the crooks and slim boys get away with the spoil. We saw this coming as we talked in 1924. We still see it. Only... You had far fewer illusions than I. It's funny when you read the letters between Eric and Hemingway at the time. While Hemingway was disappearing into a booze-sozzled abyss, Eric's writing was becoming masterly. Hemingway to Eric, Cuba, 23rd of December, 1954. Dear Chink, please remember one thing. You are always welcome here, anytime, and, and as long as you want to stay. Please know that and that I always have the necessary to handle your transport and expenses. Eric never did visit Hemingway in Cuba. On July the 2nd, 1961, the writer was found dead at his home in Idaho. I remember father coming out from the library and hearing this, and he was terribly, terribly upset. I mean, literally tears, I remember. I suppose it was the end of some of his youth and his past, really. There is one legacy of Eric's friendship with Hemingway that lives on in the image of one of Eric's enemies. If you recall, when Eric and Hemingway went running with the bulls in Spain in the 1920s, they wore Basque berets. When Eric returned to staff college in England, he introduced that hat, and Montgomery adopted it as his own signature headgear. Isn't there a dramatic sense of irony there in that Monty was actually wearing a hat Absolutely. that your don't, father... Don't worry, we, we, we spotted that years ago. But you're quite right. It is absolutely ironic. There, there's, something, uh, there's something very fitting, perhaps. Monty would, would not have seen the humour in that. I thought that Eric had died a bitter man. In so many of his letters, he complains about his treatment by the British establishment. As a general he had been denigrated by both Churchill and Montgomery. In Churchill's own memoirs, he had described Eric's actions as disastrous. Eric threatened to sue Churchill, but was persuaded to drop the case because Churchill was old and infirm at the time. More seriously for Eric, 
was Montgomery's claims that he was a coward at El Alamein and was afraid to finish the fight. But then a young historian found a document which proved Montgomery wrong. The historian was Corelli Barnett and the document he found was a memorandum written by Eric in North Africa in July 1942. In the memorandum, Eric outlined a strategy for winning at El Alamein. Not only did it show that he wasn't afraid to go into battle, as Montgomery had implied, but it also described a series of actions which Montgomery himself appeared to follow. That memorandum of Eric's was actually borne out by events later, for which, of course, he got no credit. Eric Dorman O'Gowan's life ended in Cavan in 1969 from stomach cancer. He was 73. Some people who attended his funeral told me that it was a wet and a very windy, miserable day. GA President Aegon O'Furiel. The mix of people who were there was quite incredible. In uniform, you had a presence from the Irish Army. There was probably some military attaché from the British Army, but he was not in uniform. There were some IRA men, I spoke to them, who were there, not in any sense of formation or line-up, but they were very much present in it. And then burying him, there was the, the local Coothill Church of Ireland rector and the Catholic parish priest of Drumgoon. So even in death, this was a complex life. While exploring Eric's life, I wondered what my late grandfather might have taught him at military college. I'd like to think he told him, stick to your principles, don't follow the herd, question authority. But then again, as it turned out, there was probably no need to say something like that to Eric Dorman O'Gowan. However, uh, it didn't do much damage. And... But by that time, the firing was general all down the canal, and it was a most tremendous noise, most magnificent noise of rifle fire. It like, sounded like all the bizzlers in the world going on at once, with the echo, of course, of the, the walls. Uh, we, we can cut you there, because you're, you're getting ahead. <laughs> 